Hello and welcome to Your Employment Matters. I'm Beverly Williams and I'm here to help you navigate your career. This is for anyone who's searching for their dream job or promotion, or perhaps you're just looking to hang on to the job you have. Today's work environments are multi-generational, multi-religious, multinational, multiracial, and multi-gender and multi-gender identity. Add market disruptors like Amazon and Lyft, along with the addition of AI, and it's easy to see why finding and keeping a job is such a challenge. Employment success and even employment survival depend on your ability to adapt. That's why my goal for this 30-minute podcast is to first advocate embracing change and differences, and second, to encourage you to proactively assume responsibility for your career. Get your work week off to a good start by listening to Your Employment Matters every Monday. Find out how to own your career and get the best practices for making your employment matter. As you may know, this podcast focuses on employment generally and careers more specifically. I constantly emphasize how much the employment landscape has changed and will continue to change and how I personally believe individuals can survive and thrive through industry transitions. I've interviewed guests with a multitude of backgrounds, experiences, and employment journeys. These people have shared a wealth of information, including instructive stories. We've heard personal accounts of transition, new beginnings, and how individuals pivoted because they had no choice. They had to. David Boardman, my guest today, knows firsthand about the need to pivot. Why? Because the industry in which he works has undergone a radical change. David Boardman is Dean of the Klein College of Media and Communication at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He has academic and financial responsibility for one of the largest and most comprehensive programs of its kind. He's responsible in some way, shape, or form for 2,500 students and 200 faculty members. Previously, David was executive editor and senior vice president of the Seattle Times, the largest news organization in the Pacific Northwest. Under David's leadership, the Times won four Pulitzer Prizes and produced 10 Pulitzer finalists. Thank you, David, for making the time to be with us today and welcome. I'm honored to have someone of your stature and experience, knowledge, and just you being you here to discuss what I'm sure is going to be beneficial to listeners, whatever career they've chosen. And let me just say, as an aside, but as also as a thank you, thank you to my dear friend Dansby, who is re- Dansby White, let me give you his full name, because he is responsible for connecting me with David. Thank you, Dansby. Well, thank you, Dansby, and thank you, Beverly. I'm really honored to be here. It's been fun to explore some of your other podcasts uh, online, and I'm really impressed with what you do, and I'm honored to be your guest today. 
Well, hopefully other people are listening because it's free. You know, everyone can't afford a coach, a career coach. So there's information on my website, youremploymentmatters.com. Go to the podcast section. And there are, if not 50, almost 50 podcast interviews that hopefully you'll find interesting. Now, rather than go into the the data that that I uncovered from the uh, Pew Research Group about how the newspaper industry changed, I think we we can take, as we say in in legal parlance, judicial notice that media has changed. Newspaper, magazines, television, radio, all kinds of outlets and platforms exist in a way that they didn't exist before. Did the people like yourself, David, did professionals like you, did you see it coming and did you have time to be proactive rather than reactive? Well, <laughs> I would say that some of us saw it coming and and some of us didn't. But as a business, it was very, very difficult in the newspaper business for the business itself and a tradition of news media industries over many decades was a very sharp separation of the journalism, the people who went out and reported and edited and published the stories and what we called the business side of the operation, which was the the people who sold advertising and and subscriptions. Um, We kept uh, an iron curtain between those two sides. And that was for good, solid ethical reasons. But ultimately, that wound up, I think, being to our own self-destruction because a lot of people, particularly on the business side, did either did not see this coming with the speed with which it happened, or in many cases, I think even when they saw it, they just didn't want to extricate from that um, mother's milk of, of money <laughs> over that was that was flowing for for a hundred years. And it was a very lucrative business model. It used to be that people who published newspapers and and you know it, it for many decades it was individuals and then it became largely um, large corporate chains they made just obscene profits uh, obscene profit margins and it, the business model was very much based on aggre- uh, giving advertisers an aggregated market of individuals within a community so you might in a particular day's newspaper, you might have an ad for Chevrolets. Well, there might only be one or two or five people in the quarter million people who bought that newspaper that day who want to buy that car. But if they find the car dealer, then it's worth the car dealer's money to have bought that ad. It was a very different business model based on providing mass audiences to advertisers. The price of circulation, as you know, in our lifetimes, you could buy a newspaper for a dime, a quarter, 50 cents, uh, even when it got up to a dollar. It's only a fraction of what it actually cost to report, publish and deliver that newspaper. That was all subsidized so that we could sell to advertisers. Well, that whole world got changed dramatically by the Internet. Suddenly... Advertisers weren't interested in large, aggregated mass audiences. 
They were interested in targeted audiences. They were interested, if I'm a car dealer, I just want to speak to people who are looking for a car. I don't want all those other people. And suddenly I could do that on the internet. First, I could do it on free sites like Craigslist, which was amazing. That was a revelation for a lot of people. And then even when the sites started charging, it turned out they were far more effective. Now, to get back to your original question, newspapers and news media had the opportunity to own that space because they had the trust, they had the connections, they had the audience, but they didn't, they didn't take advantage of it. And the end result of that is, has been dramatic loss of revenue in particularly the newspaper and magazine industries. And even as those organizations have moved to digital delivery, much less money at hand, and then a resultant enormous drop in the number of journalists working in newsrooms. So as the dean of, of, a, of a school of journalism, media and communications, how do you adjust to that? How do you train future ger- journalists? It, and the other thing is, as I was preparing for, for your interview, I realized I didn't know whether journalism and media are synonymous. Well, in our school, they're not. Our school is a a comprehensive school of media and communication. So we do have a department of journalism, but we also have department of advertising and public relations. We have one called uh, Department of Media Studies and Production. We have one called Communication and Social Influence, which is for people who want to use communication and media for nonprofits or political communication, health communication. So, you know, it goes certainly well beyond what we think of traditionally as journalism. You know, in terms of how we prepare students for this world, we approach them, even as we're recruiting them, we, re- we approach them with confidence that, and, and I have many conversations like this with their parents who worry if their student is going to study journalism, will they get a job on the other end? And, you know, we and other good programs are still placing students into really good positions, but they're, they're different than they were when I came out of college or even 20 years ago. They have to have, you know, strong, strong digital skills. They have to understand social media. They have to be comfortable working across platforms, whether that's video, audio, digital, or print. But the essential skills of a journalist, which are to ask questions, to have just an innate curiosity about how things work and why, to be willing and even eager to question authority and to speak truth to power and to give voice to those who, who struggle to have their voices heard. Those things are exactly the same as they were before. And you know, I would say in the years 2020 and 2021, we have seen, you know, in the most dramatic and painful way, how important and essential communication is to our democracy and how important journalism is. And you know, we saw, certainly we've seen through the whole COVID crisis, the cost of misinformation, disinformation, and false propaganda. And that has been a life and death matter. At the same time, you know, last summer we saw in the long overdue racial reckoning of the nation, we saw how important it was to have 
good, solid journalism and accounting of what's gone on in the justice system and in this country for many years previous and and continues to go on. And then certainly around the election, I think we really came to rely on trustworthy, solid journalism and media. So there's no question it's at least as important, if not more important than it always has been. The trick is we're in this period of tremendous transition where we're in the process of finding viable business models for journalism. And there's lots of reason for optimism, you know, not to go on too long, but I want to share, in addition to my paying job, I'm the chair of a nonprofit organization here in Philadelphia that's called the Lenfest Institute for Journalism. And that nonprofit actually owns the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of the great newspapers of America. And that arrangement is really transforming the Inquirer and building a viable future that's built on uh, not so much on advertising, but on digital subscriptions, where consumers are beginning to understand that getting good, reliable, trustworthy information costs money, and they need to support that operation, both through subscriptions and through philanthropy. But how does the everyday person determine whether the news outlet that they watch or listen to is giving them reliable, accurate news? Yeah, it's a very challenging thing to do. And, you know, one of the great quotes I've heard on where we are in terms of media these days is James Carville, who is the political uh, advisor, said one time, Americans these days use the media the way a drunk uses a lamppost for support, not illumination. And, you know, there's There's really something to that. People tend to go to the sources that reinforce their preconceived notions. And one of the things that I advocate with students and with others is you really need to get your news from a variety of sources. You need to hear different perspectives. But ultimately, you need to really look at the history and track record of your news source and make judgments about how reliable has it been and how reliable is it today. And there is no question that the most reliable news sources are those with significant history, with historical brands that have stood the test of time. And whether that's you know, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and it's not to say that they haven't made dramatic mistakes over the years, they have but they own up to their mistakes. We see, you know, in the television networks, certainly CNN, NBC, and even Fox have, you know, very different approaches to a lot of things. But even on Fox, if you're watching the news reports and you separate those out from the commentary, which is the Hannity's and the Laura Ingram's, if you're just focused on the news reports, most of those are reliable. Similarly with MSNBC, I mean, they have a very strong point of view and it's a different point of view. And I wouldn't say that their commentary is any less biased, but their reporting 
certainly has a strong track record that's rooted in NBC News. So people, you know, they have to be smart consumers just like they are of automobiles or breakfast cereal or or anything else that they're consuming. Would you say the same for the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, the Wall Street Journal is one of the most reliable news sources in the world. Their editorial page, not so. Their editorial page is extremely conservative and I would say often quite unreliable in terms of its factual foundation. But the the news pages of the Wall Street Journal are spectacularly solid. Now, how do you reconcile that? How I, as a layperson, as a non-journalist, I look at the Wall Street Journal, I read the news, and then I go to the opinion pages. If the information is not consistently reliable, how do I know that that's the case? Yeah, that's a great question, Beverly. And it's actually when I was the editor of the newspaper in Seattle, it was one of my great frustrations, frankly, is I was in charge of all of the the news report, including sports and features and food and books and and everything, along with, you know, crime and courts and politics and environment. But we had we had editorial pages that were under separate direction as they are in the Wall Street Journal. And even though in Seattle, I thought ours were quite sound and and good from a factual standpoint, they took a point of view as an institution that readers had a hard time understanding. Wait a minute, you're telling me you're trying to present this reliable news that really tries to work past whatever biases your reporters have. And then at the and then I turn the page and you're telling me what to think about something. So I, I actually think having editorial pages is destructive to the reliability and trustworthiness of newspapers. I wish they didn't have an institutional voice. I think it's fine to have opinion pages that just are essays from people in the community and from experts, but the news organization itself should not have a, an institutional point of view. But is that any different than having like Fox News and the Hannity's and Ingram's? No, I think it's exactly the same. That And that's what I think the problem is. You know, I think whether it's print or media video, right. video, they should be separated. They should be separated and they should be very clearly designated. So, you know, Fox takes the position that, well, Hannity, you know, if Hannity rails against vaccinations, that shouldn't matter because we he's not a news, he's not a journalist, he's he's an entertainer. I mean, that's the position they take. Well, the people who consume Fox News, many of them don't make that distinction. No, they don't realize that there is a difference. They're speaking on per- what's considered in many cases the same platform. Right. Yeah, it's we're in a very challenging period as a nation regarding that. And that's why I think what we call media literacy is so essential and why I think it really ought to be a required course for high schoolers <laughs> is to to really get educated about how media in general, not just news media, but movies, entertainment, TikTok, how these media sources work, what their business models are, what their motivations are, how algorithms work, how they are designed to manipulate you and 
exploit you, <laughs> and then you're an informed consumer. And we need to we need to start young with people to help them understand all of that. Well, I would agree with you, David. But do you think that maybe we should reinstate civics? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, just like putting the which one is that which came first? That which should come first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, I think you need both. I think you need both because. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, journalism, the reason that I got into journalism, journalism is it is the fourth estate. It is the an essential element of a civil society and of a democracy. But you need to be educated on how civil society works, how our government works, and then certainly how our press uh, works. Well, you know, in fairness, though, because I have a dear friend that I grew up with who believed everything she read in the newspaper way back when. I mean, we're talking Walter Winchell on TV, but if she read it in the newspaper, she believed it. And even then, that wasn't, uh, from my perspective, I don't believe everything I read or hear. No, I'm just, I agree. I'm just, I'm just more jaded than she is, even at a young age. No, I, I absolutely agree. And you know, one of the things that I think is both fascinating and challenging for us these days, yes, it used to be when I was growing up, it was after Walter Winchell, but it was Walter Cronkite. And so this guy would appear on the, the television every night, and you know, middle-aged white guy and tell us, and that's the way it is. And you know, we know now that often that wasn't the way it was, or that's the way it was from a middle-aged white man's perspective, but not the way it was from, from lots of other people's perspectives. And so you're right. I mean, we can't take any of it at face value. But if you are, you know, if you're a smart consumer of news and if you are turning to brands that have a history of credibility and that own up to their mistakes, and as long as you have some assortment that you're just not relying on one source for your news, um, you can become an informed individual, no question. Well, knowing what you know now, in hindsight, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. would you have done anything differently as you embarked upon your career of journalism? Well, certainly, you know, I, in retrospect, I wish I would have pushed even harder for us as an organization in Seattle to move more swiftly to digital subscriptions. That particular company, which is family owned by a, a wonderful family that's committed to journalism, they've done a good job of moving the paper along that road. And it looks like they will be one of the survivors. Thousands of newspapers have not survived. Here in Philadelphia, you know, we're really hopeful that um, we can move the inquirer to that level of healthy revenue that comes primarily from consumers and then with some targeted advertising, but mostly reader supported and philanthropy supported. People need to understand that, you know, a, a, a good community news site is it's like a library or a museum or, a, or an orchestra. It's one of those community assets that needs to be supported and protected. And once it's gone, it's very, very hard to recreate. You know, I'm thinking, I don't know, what advice would you give a budding journalist? 
someone, let's say I always wanted to be Lois Lane. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's not true, but you know. <laughs> yeah, but there's plenty, of, no, there's, there's plenty of room for Lois Lane's and plenty of opportunity for Lois Lane's. I think the, particularly if young people are interested in doing reporting on serious issues. You know, everybody wants to write about Hollywood or the NFL. And, and there are plenty of jobs in sports and entertainment. But where we really need to encourage young people to get involved is in doing serious reporting about the issues that our country and our world are facing, from climate change to race relations to poverty. And it is a profession in which very few people get wealthy but it also is an incredibly rewarding profession in which you can very directly see the impact of your work. I will say I was, uh, before I became the top editor of the Seattle Times, I was for many years an investigative journalist and editor. And I can point to literally two or three dozen stories in which I was directly involved that changed laws and saved lives. And, you know, there aren't too many professions where you can you can say that. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. One other question. Ethics and integrity. How do you teach that? How does a, a, a journalist, because I'm not so sure that I believe that there's a lot of that out there these days. Because there are too many different versions of what people set out as facts that aren't accurate, that they know aren't accurate. Misinformation, if that, you know, to put a, a, a bow on it and, and, and make it, and perfume and make it smell good, it's wrong in my estimation, but there doesn't seem to be an ethical obligation to report the truth. I'm glad you expressed that. And I know that a lot of people feel that way. And certainly there are, there are myriad examples of that. I would also say, however, that there are many legitimate news sources, both national and local, where ethics, integrity, and truth-telling is the highest value in that workplace. And Again, one of the best ways to identify that in a news source is to see, do they ever correct their mistakes? If so, you know, how do they do it? Do they do that in a prominent way? So you know, many people are critical of the New York Times, and certainly the New York Times has, has had missteps along the way. I would say most notably when a couple of their reporters helped lead us into the Iraq war. But they did their own extensive retrospective examination of that and owned up to those errors. And that, to me, is integrity. You know, when they make a mistake, they correct it in the newspaper every day. And it's not to say they're perfect, and it's not to say that they don't bring biases and points of view to their reporting. It's impossible to be a human being and be entirely objective. But they make the best reporters there and elsewhere make every effort to to prosecute their own ideas and their own biases and to own up to their mistakes. And I think there are many, many ethical 
journalists out there, and we're doing our best here at Temple to create the next generation of ethical journalists. Well, I, I hope you do. But, you know, I think one of the major problems is speed. It's important to get it out there quickly. You can't wait until the next day when the newspaper comes out because everything, there's a 24-hour news cycle. There's 24-hour cable. There's Twitter. There's all kinds of social media platforms. And the word gets out quickly. So you want journal, I think some journalists, uh, you know, and I'm not issuing a blanket indictment, but, you know, quite frankly, I'm an educated woman, but I'm somewhat confused. I'm not quite sure I know what the rules of engagement are. What can I rely on? I have friends that don't even rely on American journalism. Well, they go to the BBC or the French outlets because they don't trust what they're hearing and what they're reading in America. Sometimes it's that they want to get, they want to be the one to break the news and they're not always taking the time that they would have taken years earlier under different circumstances and in a different environment to make sure that they have uh, someone to substantiate what's being said, that they have corroboration and they've They have multiple sources of corroboration. It's just less attention to detail, let me say it that way. No, Beverly, those are astute observations that I couldn't agree with more. And, you know, it is, it's a profound difference in the previous generation of journalists where, you know, the worst thing you could do is to get something wrong in the newspaper or or on the air, you would be mortified to get a fact wrong. And with the, particularly over the last 10 years or so, there has been much more of a mindset that, well, I've, I've actually heard somebody use this phrase, it's never wrong for long. You put it out there and see how, whether people attack it or correct it. And, and that's a very dangerous game. I am hopeful that all of the pushback, blowback, and and the the measurable and dramatic loss of trust in news media among the public will ultimately turn the tables and get us back in that pendulum swing to taking more time and much more care to get it right. But we're in a an era now where it is confusing. Uh, even for the most highly trained eye like myself, it it's confusing and frustrating and confounding, no question. Well, I think we'll end on that note, David. Unless you have something else, another message you would like to give to our listeners, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know you have work to do. I, I would, I guess, want to say speak to to two sectors of your listeners. I think your overall audience, I would say, you know, you and I both have expressed our frustrations with uh, the state of the news media today. But I would want to say that, again, remind people the profession of journalism was the one and only industry (laughs) that is specifically called out for protection in our Bill of Rights. The founders understood how absolutely essential 
journalism and communication are to the survival of this democracy. And as uh, frustrated or disgusted as you might be with it, the only way to make it better is actually to find sources that you like, um, whether that's your local newspaper, subscribe to it, public radio, donate to it, you know, whatever it might be, support it, because that is the only way that quality journalism is going to survive and thrive in the future. And then to the particularly young people who are considering this as uh, an area of profession, I would encourage you, you know, don't let all of uh, this gloom and doom discourage you from getting involved. Somebody has to reinvent these industries for this century, and it, and it might as well be you. So don't get discouraged and dive into the deep end with us. David, and let me say this. I agree with you. And in the last few years, one of the things that has kept me more positive than I, than I am, because I'm more pragmatic than positive, I know with some degree of certainty that the fact that there are Pulitzer Prizes out there waiting for journalists who break news that changes the world will make a difference in my life and in everyone's life. I know with some degree of certainty when it looks dark and it doesn't look like the truth is going to come out, I know that there are reporters in various states, counties, cities that are peeling back the onion and looking for the truth. And I know eventually it will come out. And it has. It absolutely has. So thank you so much for your time and and your contribution to my podcast. And it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation and hope we talk again. Thanks, Beverly. Thanks for listening to Your Employment Matters with Beverly Williams. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review. I truly appreciate your support and that helps other listeners find the podcast. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, you can reach me at bawilliams at youremploymentmatters.com. My book, Get the Job Done, is available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Please join me again next week. Until then, remember to embrace change and differences. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.